I want to start by telling, um, telling you that I read an article recently about a new form of dog therapy. So this is not therapy for humans that involves dogs, but it's actually for the dogs themselves. And there's a, a dormitory in North Carolina that takes these dogs that have been severely neglected or mistreated uh, who might get catatonic upon being approached and certainly upon being leashed. And um, at, this, um, at this site that works with these animals, what they're doing is they're training them to trust again. So this is a key aspect of the program, trust. Um, so the program originally hoped to have like a 50% success rate with retraining these dogs. It became far more successful and hundreds of dogs have now um, gone through this program and, uh, and they've slowly learned how to, um, to enjoy human company again. Uh, and so this, uh, uh, this transformation for these animals uh, involved attention and positive reinforcement. And over time, it really was able to teach them to trust. And this article stood out to me uh, because I wondered, how do we learn to trust? How can we trust others? Especially if we've ever been betrayed, how can we learn to trust again? Can we trust this practice? Can we trust ourselves? I've worked with several Zen students who say they've made so many poor decisions, they no longer trust themselves to make good ones. Or even if they trust themselves, there's a tremendous amount of anxiety in the process of making choices. So can we trust our capacity for decision-making? I felt the, um, having heard that so many times, I think collectively it may be helpful to reflect on on how we can learn to trust ourselves. So that's the theme tonight, learning to trust oneself. So uh, this isn't done through building up the ego structure or making yourself into a new and improved you, uh, but in trusting this practice, uh, which is to say trusting your big mind, your capacity for wisdom and compassion. So this is trusting the wisdom that runs through all things. So it's not about becoming something you're not, but illuminating uh, what is already there, what might be hard to see. So I'm going to offer three main approaches for learning to trust oneself. So the first is listening to the mind and body. The second has to do with ethical behavior, with precepts. And the third is checking the impact of our actions over time. So before, during, and after an action. So um, you can think of checking out the impact of your action over time. Um, and of course, beings that we are in a tradition that uh, questions the nature of being a self at all, what what exactly does it mean to trust oneself? Who exactly are we learning to trust anyway? So hopefully we'll be able to bring some clarity to these questions. 
so I want to start with this first one in the list, listening to the mind and the body. When I say listen, I mean being aware of or being mindful of them. Um, so we train in mindfulness so we can see more clearly before making decisions. Uh, we wouldn't, we wouldn't want a, a surgeon to wear a blindfold while performing surgery on us. Similarly, if we're going to trust our decision-making, if we're gonna trust ourselves, we can do so if we're seeing more clearly, if we're able to take in more data from the mind, the body, and the heart um, without identifying with any of the stories that pipe up in the meantime. Um, so this process of listening, of clearly seeing, of getting quiet enough to notice the mind, which includes the emotional processes, um, the thoughts, the emotions, the intentions, particularly, and the body. So um, I want to highlight one aspect of the mind a little further, which, which is intention. So I spoke about intention in January when I was here uh, with you all. Um, and I'll spend a little bit more time on that tonight because I think it has a lot to do, um, it does have a lot to do with our happiness. Um, so paying attention to intention um, is important because it's the in intention behind an action that determines our happiness. So this is the teaching of karma. Karma is just intentional action. So, um, so if we act uh, from a wholesome intention, maybe based in renunciation, such as uh, an intention of letting go of craving and aversion, or we act from an intention of kindness or of compassion or patience or generosity, great, that's planting a wholesome seed that's liable to, to sprout and have wholesome fruit. And when I say wholesome, I just mean conducive to happiness, um, not uh, good or bad in a moralistic sense. Um, but if I have an intention behind an action that's based in craving, greed, selfishness, uh, or ill will, hatred, aversion, fear, I might get a very different fruit if I plant that seed. So those are not conducive to happiness. Um, so when I mentioned noticing if there's craving in the mind, if that's fueling us, um, it can be helpful to remember, especially because craving is so convincing, um, so enticing, that, um, that it's actually inherently unsatisfying. So when, when was the last time you craved a slice of pizza and everything in your being was like, I am going to be so happy when I have that pizza, like this sense of, I'll oh, finally be able to be at ease or rest or be content when I finally get that pizza. Uh, and that might seem absurd, but there's something in us that says that when we, oh, I'll finally be able to relax when I finish that project or be joyful when I move to that other neighborhood uh, or when I find a different partner. Um, so making changes is fine uh, and often very skillful but believing that our happiness lies in getting what we want and avoiding what we don't want is a delusion. 
So we begin to study our intentions and study our mind to make decisions that will lead to a more stable happiness, not contingent on pleasure or pain, gain or loss or praise and blame. So when I first started getting into Buddhism, maybe about 15 years ago, there was a particular teacher that I really admired. And I hadn't met them, but I was so inspired by their books. And at one point I even quit my job and got a one-way ticket to India to practice the teachings that this teacher talked about. Um, and uh, fast forward many years, uh, I was offered an opportunity to work directly with this teacher as a mentor supporting uh, new mindfulness teachers. Uh, so this for me, um, and not, and by the way, not that I was any, you know, it wasn't a very special thing. There's plenty of other mentors. I wasn't uh, alone in this opportunity. Um, but for me, it was a real dream. It was a real, um, like really exciting thing to get to work with this teacher. Um, but there was one catch. Uh, the catch was that it wouldn't be financially viable to do this job alone, which would mean I would need to work that job as well as the other job I had at the time. Uh, so that other job was more than a full-time job as it was, uh, and it was a job that I loved. And so I had a decision to make. And I had a really hard time deciding what to do. So, you know, if I do it, I thought, you know, if I do it, it's possible I could probably make it work, but I literally won't have time for friends uh, or leisure for the next two and a half years. Or alternatively, I don't do it and I say no to this once in a lifetime opportunity. So, how do I trust the right decision? So this is where listening comes in. This is where being mindful of our experience. And for you, the decision that you may be making might be far greater, a much bigger decision, or something so just the smallest thing, like our whole life, every moment of our life is a decision. Uh, which pair of socks am I gonna put on in this moment? Or do I close the door or leave it open? Our whole life consists of these moments uh, and our actions come out of these intentions. Um, so this is where the listening comes in. This is where our mindfulness comes in. Often uh, we don't listen to our inner world as completely as we can. So we're really missing out on valuable information. Um, so some of us make decisions in looking at the mind. Some of us make decisions based more in the rational brain um and the immediate response is kind of a stew of mental proliferation and pros and cons um, and that tends to be kind of the my natural conditioning uh, and so i make sure all the beings within are heard and that their opinions and fears and concerns and excitements are are met wholeheartedly um, but because the mind creates so much content for me, I really need to listen to the body. So this is a bringing more information online. We have this um, common phrase, trust your gut. So what's it mean to, like, how do you trust your gut? 
Um, so of course the mind in this situation was dominated with, oh, this will be so great. Um, but as I started to tune into the body, I realized whenever the thought came to mind, the body got very hard and contracted and tense, like actually shockingly rigid. Um, so by exploring that, um, I, kind of, I, I began to hear a message from, from the body that was something like, stop, this is too much. And uh, it's no surprise uh, that the body might offer a message like that. Um, as over time, uh, when I've committed to too many lovely activities, they cease to be lovely because I don't have time to appreciate them. Um, so this is grasping for activity, right? So this is just craving or grasping. So you know, even in trying to seek more opportunities to practice and be in service, my body was saying, you lose touch with practicing and being in service. Um, so for me, actually, I ended up saying no to this opportunity. Um, it ended up being an action of renunciation. Um, so this was uh, what I needed to hear. I needed to tune into the intuitive wisdom of the body. And as soon as I made that decision, it's like everything in me relaxed. There was such a release, even though it had conflict with the, the thinking mind. Um, uh, through listening, and not just to myself, by having conversation with wise friends and elders, I came into clarity there. So depending on your unique scenario and inclinations, if you're lost in thought, get quiet and bring the body online. So feel into what does it, what does it feel like in the body when you try on a given choice, you're thinking about doing something, what happens when you imagine what that's like? Is there tension or a feeling of dis-ease? Something feels a little off. Maybe there's a sense of release or a touch of relaxation. Uh, something feels right or true. So you're turning up your capacity to listen when you do that, to feel. So I also want to note in focusing on the body here that there can be an imbalance the other way as well. For some of us, we do whatever the body says or whatever the body wants, and the mind is just some tiny voice in the background saying, oh, excuse me, that might not be a great idea. And it's usually cast aside. So you know, when you're about to binge eat a Costco tub of Twinkies or have unprotected sex with a veritable stranger, uh, that might not be the moment to trust the body, right? Um, you know, that's just craving, that's just craving. And we know craving doesn't work. Craving doesn't lead to happiness. Um, so that might be a moment to bring the mind online. Let's, let's, let's feel into the mind here. Is this a good idea? Um, So we can think of uh, widening our mindfulness. So maybe the mindfulness is too narrow sometimes. So we widen it to include uh, the thoughts, the intention, the emotions, the body. And we get quiet, we can sit, we can meditate to help ourselves 
uh, allow the thoughts to settle enough to see clearly what else is happening here. Okay, so the second offering for connecting with your inner wisdom and learning to trust yourself is uh, around ethics or uh, sila in Pali, shila in Sanskrit. So um, we can study the precepts and aspire to live by the precepts. This is right action. So if you're not familiar with these teachings, uh, this is uh, part of the training of a bodhisattva, of being uh, dedicated to awakening oneself and all beings. Um, so um, for example, taking the vow not to kill or steal or engage in sexual misconduct or lie or intoxication or praising self at the expense of others, slandering, not being greedy or harboring ill will, etc. So, um, so these are about non-harming. Um, but phrased in the affirmative, we could think of them as what is support, these are um, you know, what's conducive to supporting life. Can I act in a way that supports life? And it's not about a, being a bunch of uptight rules, but rather they're guidelines for happiness. Um, the awakened being, an awakened being naturally lives by the precepts because they are the behavior of someone who fully understands their um, interconnectedness with all things. Right? To fully realize that stealing doesn't make any sense because it's like taking something from the left hand and putting it in the right hand. So um, even before we have total wisdom and clarity, we can begin to live by these precepts. Um, and um, quite appropriately, they're of course very aligned with right intention. They're based in renunciation, kindness, and compassion. So um, in listening to the mind, uh, maybe you find yourself you're engaged kind of the first step of listening to the mind what's happening in the mind and body and you notice yourself rehearsing a snide comment like you really want to get that person back with a piercing retort or some little barb in your speech oh see that oh that's you know that isn't conducive to uh, to people's well-being that's causing harm um, so okay can let that go um, just you know trying that again like realizing like where that fits with like oh I'm, you know, I've taken this vow uh, to speak kindly, not to slander or use harsh speech. So, uh, so oh, can let that go. Uh, so studying the precepts is a little bit like calibrating our tool. We learn to listen to our intention, body, mind. But what are we listening for? We're listening for, is there potential for harm? So we have this great tool of listening. But this helps us calibrate it. Um, I think like to think of it as like I, uh, I listen to my mind and to my intentions, but I do it through the filter of the precepts. Um, if, if I feel irritated by a fly that keeps landing on my face, if the impulse to swat that fly would arise, that impulse would pass through the filter of the precepts. And I wouldn't do it um, because I've taken vows not to kill. So 
uh, the, the, what this teaching revolves around um, is just, am I going to cause harm? You don't have to remember all of the different precepts. It can be helpful to get to know them in terms of learning to calibrate your listening, be able to calibrate uh, what is skillful and what is unskillful, so you can act from wholesome intentions. Just trying on, is this, is this going to cause harm? And that's so helpful. Um, once a month, I meet with a group of people from Australia and New Zealand on Zoom, and we talk about uh, the teachings of the Dharma uh, from the Theravadan tradition, the early Buddhist tradition. And uh, recently, we were talking about a similar theme to this, trusting one's gut. And one woman asked a very interesting question. Uh, she said, uh, this, this idea of truth from the inside and trusting your gut, uh, can we really trust that? Like, after all, and this is the part that struck me, she, she said, after all, doesn't an overt racist feel like they're trusting their gut? So technically, someone could be mindfully listening to their mind and body, but without knowing what to listen for, they may still ask, act unwisely. So our listening to our gut, our trusting our gut, needs to be understood through the filter of sila, through the filter of, of virtue, of ethical behavior, uh, uh, through this vow of non-harming. We can ask, why am I doing what I'm doing? Um, and this, this helps us um, know how to point our compass in terms of our actions. So what, dire what direction do we want to go with our actions? Um, yeah, a, a murderer could be mindful of their mind and body, uh, but they haven't cultivated right action. And this is a pivotal part of the path to happiness. Okay, so this is, um, so we've talked about the first step of listening to intention, mind, body. Uh, the second of exploring the precepts. And this third, it's really, so we, we might think of that uh, as what we're doing is listening, how we're doing it is listening with the filter of the precepts. And this third one is the when, when are we doing this? And this is, uh, we're doing it before, during, and after an action. Um, so uh, the Buddha had one son named Rahula, um, and this was his primary teaching to his son. So this is from a, one, of the, uh, one of the suttas in the early Buddhist canon. And the Buddha said to his son, Rahula, what is the purpose of a mirror? Well, it's for checking your reflection, sir. And the Buddha continues, in the same way, deeds of body, speech, and mind should be done only after repeated checking. So when you want to act with the body, you should check on that same deed. Does this act with the body lead to hurting myself, lead to hurting others, or both? Is it unskillful? Will suffering be its outcome and result? So then this sutta continues as is common 
in, um, in the suttas with this refrain repeating. So when you want to act with the body, check to see if you, uh, when you want, you want to act you know, before acting, check to see if you might cause harm, check in with yourself, you know, turn the mirror to look within uh, while you're acting. The sutta goes on to say, while you're acting, check on that same deed. Is it unskillful with suffering as its outcome and result? And then after you do something, check in on the same thing. You know, is it unskillful with suffering as its outcome and result? So uh, this process of observation, it's, it's, um, it's a little bit like being a scientist. Uh, we get to, we, we learn what is actually working and what's not working. We get to explore the, the uh, feedback loop of our behaviors to really see um, uh, what is taking us in a wholesome direction and what is not. Another thing to consider before acting um, sometimes even to kind of project out into the future and think, you know, how am I going to feel about this when I look back on it tomorrow or a month from now? So that might just be a question that can be helpful. And if you look back at your action with a big face palm and feel really lousy about it, um, then as Ajahn Brahm says, you can just acknowledge, forgive, and learn. No problem making mistakes. So these are um, kind of the when, how, or <laughs> what, how, and when of learning to trust ourselves. So listening, being mindful, um, attending to the precepts, and noticing how this study of mind body and ethical behavior guides us over time with our actions before during and after um, so i want to shift a bit here um, from offering these you know, traditional skillful means uh, for developing trust in oneself um, to shift to that question of who is this self we're talking about here what is this self uh, the buddhist tradition teaches us to question this belief in the separate fixed self. So it's a little bit, you know, we've been playing classical together. Now we're gonna play a little jazz with the teachings. Um, so do something a little different here. So as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, this process that I described isn't about building confidence really in a small self um, or in our concepts of being an untrustworthy or a trustworthy person. Uh, it's not really about learning to, to trust some fixed idea of May Elliot or my story about May Elliot, but I'm learning to trust wisdom and compassion and the availability of these qualities. So um, we're kind of shifting here from a, um, a limited small self view to seeing something more fluid. And I, I want to use an analogy to make a little more sense of this not self teachings as they're sometimes called or emptiness teachings um, aren't always don't always make a lot of sense what, what do you mean no self or not self so um, for ease of reference you can use this analogy thinking of a river 
So for ease of reference, we might call the river the Mississippi River. Uh, however, and we all know, well, I shouldn't say we all know, um, the Mississippi River is a well-known river. Um, and we could, it's probably listed on many maps by name. And yet the water that flows through that river is different every moment. If somebody ran in, with a cup and scooped up some water in that cup and then brought it over to you and said, hey, check it out, the Mississippi River. You'd be like, well, that cup of water is not really the Mississippi River. That's not it. It's not any single drop of water that flows through there. Um, there's actually nothing fixed in the Mississippi River. Conventionally, it's useful to call it a name, but the banks are always changing. The water is always changing. Uh, so you know, what's, there's nothing static there. So in the same way, for ease of reference, you can call me May. But what here in body and mind is fixed? It's just a river. So what flows through the river is based on countless causes and conditions. The snow melt, the soil, uh, the mouth of a deer that came to drink. And so too, we are only a composite of the myriad conditions of our lives. Uh, a composite of where we went to school and the culture we grew up in and our parents' expectations of us and uh, how close we lived to factories and the food that we ate and the grade we got on that third grade paper and the myriad things that go into shaping who we are all, all impact the river that flows through us, the river that we are. So what's important to know is we can't control where the river goes, but our intention has the greatest impact on what flows through that river. So through our intention, our careful listening to mind and body, to our vow not to harm, uh, and to seeing over time what does and doesn't cause harm, this mindful listening allows us to see what runs through us. We can start to see the contents of the river that we are. And when we can do that, we have much more say over what we choose that we actually want to act on and what we wanna let go of, just allowing to continue to flow downstream. So this is a purification. This is a purification process of seeing everything that flows through the river. Um, and through that purification, uh, this allows us to see the wisdom and compassion that we're running in the river all along. So we trust the wisdom and the compassion running through us as it becomes uh, visible, as it becomes purified through this process of mindful awareness. So the more that we practice, the more that we sit meditation, the more we wake up to who we are, to what is happening, uh, the more clearly we see our own mind river, which we could call our mind stream. So the more we can see that mind stream with clarity, and we begin to see that the thoughts of uncertainty and self-doubt or the feelings of anxiety are also just more phenomena running through the river. 
and we can cease to identify as deeply with the narrative that I can't, or I'm not good enough, or I'm not lovable, or I never know what to do, or I always make poor decisions. It just is phenomena rolling along. We don't need to make a self out of it. Uh, so when doubt and uncertainty flow down through my mind stream, I don't need to identify with it as strongly as me or mine. It's just, it's just the product of myriad causes and conditions of habit patterns and physical causes, cultural conditioning, etc. So what arises is not mine. Um, I am responsible for it, but I don't need to take it as personally. So we begin to see our worthiness or unworthiness is just a story, just another branch or bubble floating downstream. So I recently uh, read in the news about a young woman in Brazil, she's 16 years old, uh, named Vitoria Bueno. And uh, as a child, she started getting interested in dance, but she had one major hindrance. She was born without any arms. So she could have told herself many stories about her limitations. And I imagine she probably did growing up. Uh, but she also told herself a different story, so one of uh, possibility. And uh, one quote stood out to me. She said, for me, arms are just details. So she's now a regular at a ballet academy in her hometown, and she has become a social media star and an inspiration for many. So we have many, many ways uh, that we can uh, meet our own mind stream. And I thought this was a beautiful example of choosing wisely what one acts on in terms of what th flows through the mind stream. We can relate to that mind stream as I, me, and mine and take it very personally, uh, or we can hold it lightly. And I can't say how this young woman holds her mind stream, but uh, uh, listening to the way that she spoke about uh, being an inspiration for people with disabilities, I heard the intention of generosity and the intention of kindness and compassion. And when those forces are strong, it's really powerful and it's contagious. So, um, so holding all of this together, uh, if, if it doesn't make sense for you, if, if the analogy about not self doesn't land for you, you can let it go and just hold on to, or just connect with what works for you. The idea here is learning to track cause and effect and see what actually helps us uh, find trust in where happiness lies.
So uh, having shared a lot this evening, um, it could be easy, I imagine it could be easy to go, oh gosh, this was a lot of information, I have to do this, and then I need to listen, and then go before and after, and uh, I can't do all this stuff, it's too much. Um, so I'll, I'll end with just uh, one, one other analogy for how this process works. It's the analogy of swimming. So, and it, oh, and it comes from uh, one of my dear teachers, James Barras. So learning to trust looks a little like swimming. So when uh, one can't swim, doesn't know how to swim, if, uh, if they're thrown into a pool of water, you're gonna thrash around and you know, just about to drown, can't get the head above, their head above water, um, trying, you know, doing anything they can and with no luck, they're sinking. Um, but as one uh, begins to get the feel of the water, so this might be you know, as we begin to practice more and get to know ourselves and our behaviors and uh, and our virtue, our ethical guidelines, our ethical guideposts, get a feel for the water and we, we realize we don't have to struggle so much in life. We don't have to struggle so much with our swimming, um, but we can tread water a bit and start treading water. And eventually, we connect with our wisdom and compassion and we realize that this water that we've been drowning in this whole time is actually everything we need to float and that we actually don't need to even tread water but that we can rest on our backs floating allowing the teachings allowing our practice allowing the water to hold us so though it can seem like a lot of effort, um, it's a little bit like learning to swim and learning how much effort is really needed and that over time, uh, it just becomes natural to be supported, to float. So uh, may you connect with your own wisdom and compassion in a way that allows you to find peace and ease and clarity in your life. Thank you very much for listening.